All right. Well, it's good to be back in, in the new year and back in the book of Romans. And so if you have your Bibles, grab them. Romans chapter 8 is where we will uh, continue when we, we, we left off, obviously, at the end of chapter 7, uh, right before Christmas. And we are back in Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 is regarded by many to be the greatest chapter in the Bible. Now, I know I told you that Martin Luther said he thought Romans 3 was that, but I think, I think Romans 8 is that, and a lot of people think say that. Romans 8 is full of deeply beautiful truths, some hard truths, but some beautiful ones. It, it begins, the book begins with, or the, the chapter begins with the idea of no condemnation, and it ends with one of the most beautiful displays, one of the most popular displays of this great assurance that we have in Christ. There are about, I don't know, 10 verses from the chapter that probably find themselves on coffee mugs. It's a, it's a pretty popular chapter. Since we've been on break through Romans, I wanted to take a quick moment, about 60 seconds, to give you a rundown of the book of Romans so we know where we're at, so that we understand chapter 8 in its proper context. So, if you'll remember, chapters 1 through 2.5, you know, the first half of 3, so 1 through 3, really have one main idea, and that is that everyone, without exception, whether you had the law or not the law, whether you were a Jew or not a Jew, everyone is broken and guilty of sin and rightly deserves the wrath and judgment of God. So chapters 1 through 3 were really encouraging, if you remember. And then the end of chapter 3 through 5 gives this detailed description of the gospel. That this good news that we can know God through faith alone and Christ alone. And that that faith in Christ and his righteousness becomes ours. And we can stand right before God. And gives this beautiful legal and kind of technical uh, understanding of the gospel. And then chapter 6 and 7, Paul begins to deal with some questions. Like in chapter 6, if, if, if this grace from God. It's so big and so awesome. Well, can I just sin as much as I want to, and then God will get more glory because his grace will be even bigger because I'll have to cover more of my sin. So maybe I'll just keep sinning and his grace will be even better. And Paul quickly answers that with no. and kind of explains why that's not the case. And then in chapter 7, Paul makes it clear that there are these two natures within us, the old man and the new man, and there is this war going on, the new creation and the old creation in us at war fighting uh, one another. But we know that at the end, our new creation, our new selves, this new person in us will ultimately win and we'll be conformed to the image of Christ. But until that day comes, there is a battle within us. And Paul described it. He said, the things I know I should do, I don't do. And the things I know I should not do, I find myself doing. And who will release me from this bondage of death, he says. And so, and chapter 8 comes on the heels of chapter 7, obviously, and that context is important. So in chapter 8, we continue asking, if this gospel is true, if we have gone from guilty, chapters 1 through 3, to righteous before God, 4, 5, and we have faith in Christ, what does that mean for us now? According to legend, Abraham Lincoln, uh, Lincoln once uh, went to a slave auction and purchased uh, this young woman as a slave. And as, they, as he purchased her and filled out the paperwork or whatever, uh, and she began to follow him, he kind of got a little bit out of town and turned to her and uh, unclasped her shackles and looked at her and he said, you're free. Not believing him, uh, she said, 
Well, yeah, what does that mean? What does it mean that I'm free? Can I, can I say whatever I want to say? And according to legend, he said, yeah, you can say whatever you want to say. Well, yeah, what does it mean that I'm free? Can I, can I, can I do whatever I want to do? He said, yeah, you can do whatever you want to do. You're free. And then with like an, an ounce of hope, he says, can I go wherever I want to go? And he says, you're free. You can say whatever you want to say. You can do whatever you want to do. And you can go wherever you want to go. You are free. Like a freed slave, I think sometimes we're not quite sure what to do with our freedom. Like a freed slave, we're not quite sure how, how what, what does freedom mean? What does it mean that I'm free in Christ? What does it mean to be free? Can I, can I, can I do whatever I want? Can I say what I what is it? What does freedom mean? We have been slaves and captives for so long that sometimes freedom is a foreign concept that we don't know what to do with. Us all being born as slaves, it's a slaves to the power of sin, slaves to this world, slaves to our sinful nature, right? Martin Luther, uh, the great reformer, uh, I think talks about it best when he describes that. He says we don't have free will, we have a bound will. Meaning we have wills, we can choose to do what we want, but our will is always bound by our sin and our nature to sin. We are, our wills are bound and enslaved to sin. But when the Holy Spirit, through the power of the gospel, breaks the chains of our sin, breaks the chains of our lives, right? We become these new creations. God makes us alive. He sets us free. But now we're, we're living in freedom, but we don't know what to do with it. The shackles of sin are gone. We're no longer bound by sin. But now we live in this new freedom, and we, we don't know how to do with it. We don't know how to live free. Either we don't believe, actually deep down, that we're free, or we're too used to being slaves we don't know how to live as free men and women. So not knowing how to na- navigate or use this freedom, typically we fall into one or two traps as Christians. The trap or the problem of performing for God or the trap or the problem of pretending to God. We'll start with the first one. The, the problem of performing is thinking that you have to maintain a certain standard for God to accept you. And if you fail, God will punish you. So the problem of performing is thinking that you've got to maintain this certain standard for God, right? I've got to be good enough. I've got to maintain this goodness. And and if I do that, God will accept me. But if I fail, he's going to punish me. Feeling like you have to perform well enough for God is still slavery. If you think that you must continue to perform and be good enough and live up to his expectations, you are still a slave. Feeling like you have to maintain a certain lifestyle, feeling like you've got to be good enough, it's still slavery. It is fear that your master will punish you or get rid of you if you fail to be a good slave. Have you ever felt the pressure or felt guilt telling you, you better do better, you better do better, you better clean up. You better give more, you better serve more, you better read your Bible more, you better get your act together, or who knows what God might do to you. Have you ever felt like God was going to pay you back for some wrong that you've committed? That he was going to get even with you? Many of us in this room struggle with feeling like we need to keep up the performance. Maybe, maybe some of you grew up in a, in a kind of a fundamentalist church where the rules were everything, 
right? Like maybe, maybe the rules have been so ingrained in you that following the rules confirms for you uh, that, that you're, you and God are good and you're tight you're okay. Or maybe you kind of grew up in the type of church where, you know, you couldn't run, don't, don't run in the church, women can't wear pants, got to have your hair long, you got to, you know, stay to the, you can't watch rated R movies, you know, you got to follow the letter, you got to do all these things. Maybe those rules have been so ingrained in you that you think, as long as I do these rules, as long as I keep up this, then me and God will be okay. But as you and I know, performing and trying to be good enough and trying to live this sort of life is exhausting. And what does it do but, but lead to our anxiety and const, constant questioning of our salvation, if we're good enough, if our standing with God is okay, and we have this constant guilt and shame when we don't measure up to a, what we think we have to to be good with God. But for some of you, your problem is not, not necessarily that you're always striving to be good all the time. Your problem is you know you can't be, so you pretend to be. And so the problem of pretending means you are always trying to act on the outside like you have everything together even when it's not true. The problem of pretending means you're always trying to act on the outside like you have everything together even when it's not true. And can I, can I just say that Christians, I think, are particularly good at this, particularly on Sunday morning or anytime you run into a friend from church outside church. We're really good at pretending. Like, like how many times do you come to church and, and you know, you, you see that couple, they come to church and, like, their kids are all matching. They've all got bows in their hair. The, like, four-year-old's got a tie on, right? And they're walking in a straight line. And they're, they're not running all over the place, and they, they get their sticker, and they go to class, and they behave, and the husband's coming through shaking hands like, bless your brother, been a good week, man, bless you, brother. And everybody just look at him like, everything's perfect. But what you don't realize is that on their way here, him and his wife were just screaming at each other, ripping each other to shreds, and he's like swatting the kids in the back, trying to just shut up, you know. And then they get there, you'll, you'll act up, right, act good. And they get out of the car, hey, guys, how's it going? We're just pretending like everything's okay. Pretending like we're not furious. Pretending like marriages aren't falling apart. Pretending like our kids aren't driving us crazy. We're just pretending. Walking around like everything in life is great. Maintaining this outward appearance of being put together while in reality, things in our life are falling apart. Your job stressing you out. Your boss is driving you crazy. You've got this person you're so mad at, and you know you need to forgive them, but you're just furious at this person who's hurt you. And we walk around, and your brothers and sisters say to you, hey, how's it going? How was your week? And you lie, and you say, oh, great, awesome, everything's good. You just lied. When you pretend like everything is okay, trying to maintain this outward righteousness, you are acting like a slave. A slave, no matter how hard life is on a slave, a slave must always show his master that everything's okay, that, every, that they're happy, that everything's fine. All of us in this room who belong to Christ are former slaves who have been set free, but yet we don't always know how to live free. And so we keep up either this performance or we keep pretending, but both are really just new forms of slavery. Romans 8 seeks to set us free, both from the slavery of sin and the slavery we put ourselves into by performing or pretending. 
So read with me Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Paul writes in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he pins these words. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Listen to that again. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal body through the spirit who dwells in you. This is the word of the Lord. And if Romans is by all accounts, by most popular opinion, the greatest book in the Bible, and chapter 8, the greatest chapter, then verse 1 is often considered to be the greatest verse. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Now this is a fascinating therefore. Remember chapter 7. Remember, therefore, we always ask, why is it therefore? What came before it? What did he say that he's using? Therefore, this. Remember, it's an argument. Remember chapter 7. Paul is being vulnerable. He's talking about his struggle. He's saying, look, uh, all these things I want to do, the good I want to do, I have a hard time doing it. I know I should do that, and I don't do it. And then there's all these things over here. And I know I shouldn't do those things. And yet I find myself all the time doing them. That's Romans 7. And then he says, therefore. And then he says, therefore. The, the natural response is, is, is like, look, I'm screwing up. I, I, I know I should be uh, expecting some sort of judgment, some sort of condemnation, some sort of punishment. But how much? Because of my screw up, should I, should I have this much punishment, this much? How much judgment, how much condemnation am I going to get here? And so in Romans 7, we, we think, I'm screwing up, therefore I'm going to get this much punishment is the natural progression. But that's not what he says. He says in chapter 7, I'm screwing up, I'm having a hard time, these things are difficult. Therefore, because things are difficult, because of my utter failures, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm a screw-up, but yet I've been set free and forgiven of my sin, yet I still sin and yet still choose slavery like the Israelites in the wilderness wanting to go back to Egypt to be slaves again. And yet, therefore, there's no condemnation for me because I'm in Christ. This is, this is glorious news. 
This is a verse that we need to put on our mirrors in our bathroom and on our phone screens and in our cars and write it in our hearts so that every day we remember that no matter what successes or failures the day holds, no matter what happens, I stand in Christ not condemned, no matter what. Now, condemnation is this legal term, right? One that means you owe a debt because a charge is held against you. But if you are in Christ, he's saying that this debt has been paid and the charges drop. It's like like in my house. You know, I'm a southern boy, uh, and it it don't get as cold in the south as it does up here. Uh, I've been walking into church sometimes, shiver my bones off, and y'all just laugh at me, right? And so it's like me at my house, you know, it gets cold, and I'm turning the heat up to 75, right? Maybe 80. Right, trying trying to make it like a nursing home in there. Right, I'm trying to get warm. <laughs> you turn it up to 75 degrees in the winter, and at the end of the month, this huge electric bill comes. Right, but imagine this: I, I turn it up 75 degrees, this huge electric bill comes, and my wife gets the bill, and my wife writes a check, and she pays uh, pays the electric bill in full. But a week later, the electric company comes to me and they say, no, no, we expected you to pay the bill because you are the one who turned the thermostat up so high, southern boy. To which I would respond, it doesn't matter. The bill has been paid in full. Now someone else paid it on my behalf, but you have no claim on me. And if you are in Christ, God cannot, we talk about there's nothing God can't do, there are things God can't do, and he cannot condemn you if you're in Christ because your sins, past, present, and future, have been paid in full. Is that good news? Okay, y- y'all, y'all want me to, can, what? Uh, okay, y'all, y'all are allowed to talk. This is encouraging stuff. Do y'all remember that old hymn, one of my favorite old hymns that we sometimes sing? It's like, Jesus paid some of it, some of it he paid. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it mostly white. Isn't that so good? No! No, no, we sing, Jesus paid it. He didn't pay some of it. He didn't pay the reasonable sin. He paid all of it. And he paid for it with the ones you haven't even done yet. He paid for them all past, present, and future. Jesus' death wiped out not only the present existing condemnation, but he wiped out all possibility of future condemnation for you. One theologian says it this way. God doesn't love you to the degree that you are like Christ. He loves you to the degree that you are in Christ. And that is always 100%. He doesn't love you to the degree that you're like Jesus. He loves you to the degree that you are in Jesus, united to him by faith. And if you have faith in him, that is always 100%. And when you begin to understand this, and to the degree that you get this in your head and your heart, it will begin to free you from the slavery of performance 
trap and pretending. I do not ever have to be unsure of God's love for me. I do not ever have to be unsure about whether or not God and I are on good terms. And all of my mess and all of my failures, I have the unconditional love, unconditional acceptance of a heavenly father. And so we can stop trying to be good enough and perform for God. We can stop trying to make sure we live well enough for him to accept us. Because our performance is not required to find acceptance with God. Because Jesus has already performed perfectly on our behalf. And that's that's what he's talking about in verses 2 and 3. He has performed perfect. He's lived perfectly for us and died perfectly for us. So not only does this, does this truth free us from performing, but, it, but this truth frees us from pretending. You see, when I know that I know in my bones that my failures and my sins have been truly dealt with, and that even when I walk into church after cussing my wife out in the car and beating my kids and everything else bad, even when I come to church knowing that I'm ticked off at my boss and my marriage is falling apart and everything is going wrong, on my worst day, I can come knowing that I stand with God perfectly. And that he has not moved an inch from me. I know that I, when I, when I know that I can't hide anything from God. That he sees all of my mess. That he sees me trying to pretend and cover it up. Still loves me. He's still not abandoned me. When I understand that it frees me to stop pretending in front of you. It frees me up to stop pretending in front of you. Because if God sees my mess and still loves me, why the heck do I care what you think? And if we let brothers and sisters in Christ see our mess, if we let each other see our messes, they shouldn't look down their nose at us. They should say, me too. Been there. And isn't God so good despite our mess? There is literally nothing about me, there is literally nothing about you that can be revealed that Jesus has not already seen, know about, and blood already covered for those in Christ. He is not going to uncover some hidden truth in your life. Oh, well, you were good, but then I found this thing right here, and we're going to talk about that. That's not how it works. There There is no new information that he is not privy to. And so we can stop pretending. We can stop pretending because whatever we are most embarrassed about, whatever we are most ashamed about right now, Jesus has seen it and declared it. No condemnation. So we can stop pretending. Those of us who pretend to have it all together, you know what our greatest fear is? Our greatest fear is that if people really knew me, they wouldn't love me. If people really saw me for who I am, they wouldn't love me. If they knew the real struggles in my life, they wouldn't love me. But before God, God says, you are fully known and fully loved. I see you I see you perfectly and I love you perfectly. You are fully known and fully loved before God. You are laid bare before him, fully exposed. He sees all parts of you. He even sees parts of you that you are not fully aware of yourself. No amount of pretending can hide your faults from him. And yet his love has never wavered. His love has never budged an inch. He doesn't hold back. And so in your life, when you, when you remember your sins or when the, when the enemy, who's called the accuser, right, points them out to you, brings them to your mind and says, yeah, but look at this over here. Remember this thing you did a couple years ago? 
Yeah. Better let anybody find out about that. Better make sure you don't think about that so God doesn't know about it. When, when, the, when the enemy brings those things to your mind, what do you do? When, you, when, you, when, you're, when you're burdened and your shoulders are so tight because you're holding this guilt and this shame and, and you don't know how to get past it. And you, you, you remember the lines of this old hymn that says, Long may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more, but Jehovah, God, knows knows none of them. I know my sin. The enemy knows my sin, but God has cast them as far as the east is from the west and remembers them no more. No condemnation. And so stop pretending. Stop performing. Stop feeling and wallowing in guilt and shame. Stop beating yourself up. Stop the anxiety. Stop the fear. Stop the dread and rest. Lower your shoulders and sink helplessly into the embrace of a father who loves you so much that you could never out his grace. This is the good news of the gospel, that you can truly be forgiven for every mistake and set free to never have to live in worry, to never have to perform or pretend, but rest knowing that God has you and is not going anywhere. By now, we should understand these legal aspects of the gospel. We should get the gospel. I've talked about it enough. Verse 3 and 4 summarize it by saying, Jesus condemned your sin in the body of Jesus. That the reason you have no condemnation is because you are in Christ, and in Christ your sin was condemned 2,000 years ago. That justice has been paid for your sin. But here's, we should get that, but here's the harder question I want us to look at that answer. How do I know that these truths, this gospel, this no condemnation is true of me? How do I know that it's true of me? How do I know it's been applied to me? How do I know that I belong to God and God has set me free from it? How do I know? The lack of clarity around this answer continues to lead us to pretending and performing, right? Because if you're not sure if you're right with God, if you're not sure if you've been set free, what do you do? You walk on eggshells. You're always worried. You're worried that you're going to be exposed as the fraud you are. So the only way to be set free from our exhausting performance and our exhausting need to pretend is to know that the freedom and no condemnation actually belongs to us. And the rest of the verses Paul uses to explain, uh, he he, he shows us this. Look at verse 2, he says, For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now the the key word here is the word for, which you can understand simply as because. There is no condemnation for you for or because the law of the spirit of life, remember that phrase, the law of the spirit of life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now you've got to understand what this means. Because the law of the spirit is not a new set of rules. That would not be good news. He's not saying, here, look, I've got a new Ten Commandments for you to follow, and if you obey these, then you'll live. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, look, we used to operate under this old law. This law that couldn't change our hearts and only made us fearful of God and led us to pretending and performing to make sure we were always good enough. But it was all in vain because our best works before God are but filthy rags. And in that old law, there is no hope for us, only condemnation. But now there's a new law, a new law that really isn't a law in as much as it is a principle or an idea. And it is this life-giving power of the Spirit. 
of the Holy Spirit. If the old law's motto was this, that only if you obey perfectly will you find life. The old law's motto was only if you obey perfectly will you find life. This new law, or the law of the Spirit, says you will never obey perfectly enough as you are. So I will begin to mold you into something who can. I will make you into someone who, when you arrive one day in God's kingdom, you will not have to pretend anymore to fit in. You will naturally fit in. Because I will make you just like Jesus, perfect in every way. So, how do I know that there is no condemnation for me? How do I know? I don't know these truths are true for me. Because I see the Spirit of God at work in my life. Paul's answer. I can know that these things are true for me if the Spirit of God is at work in my life. You see, when Jesus sets us free from sin's condemnation, from the punishment of sin, he also sets us free from the power of sin. What that means is that you you are no longer bound or shackled in slavery to the law, the need to live in performance, the, the need to pretend, and the attractiveness and the allure of sin's call no longer has its claws in you. And so the Spirit is making you, molding you into this new creation, this new person. And whereas before, when sin called to you, you had to answer. You had to obey because sin was your master. You had to give in. But now that you've been set free, we no longer have to answer sin's call. We can run in a new direction. We can run away from it. Verse 8 tells us that before we came to Christ, when we were just in our flesh, it says very clearly, we could not please God. If you're in the flesh, you cannot please God. Nothing we did could be pleasing to him. But now all that has changed because we've been set free and now the Spirit is at work in us. And so he says at the end, you know, if the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that gave new life to the rotting corpse of Jesus, If that same spirit now lives inside of you, then just as he gave life to Jesus, so too is he giving glorious resurrected life to you right now because he lives in you. So look at verse 5 and 6. Because here's the difference between our old life and new life. This is the evidence. For those who live according to the flesh. Now understand flesh here is the Greek word sarks, and it doesn't just mean your body. It means that old, corrupted, broken part of you. For those who live according to the flesh, to the broken part of you, they set their minds on the flesh. They set their minds on the broken parts of this world. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Our old life before Christ was headed in one direction. Slaves to sin were our minds and our energy and our lives were working in one direction. We wanted our sin. It was leading us to only death and destruction and chaos. But now, but now that the Spirit of God is in, is in us, now our minds are set on things above, set on new things in a new direction. Our mind is set on Christ and on our life with him, and it's headed in a different direction, headed toward abundant life, headed toward things like peace and joy. But understand this, Jesus does not grant you freedom from sin just so that you can enjoy your sin guilt-free. All right, think about that for a minute. Jesus does not grant you freedom from sin just so that you can enjoy your sin guilt-free. 
He's not saying, hey, look, I've set you free. This is chapter 6, right? He's not saying, I've, just, I've set you free, you're forgiven, so now just go enjoy all the pleasures of the flesh and have a good time. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, look, the reason I've set you free from sin is because your sin is killing you. It's killing you spiritually, physically, emotionally. In every way, it is destroying your life. And I have come to set you free from its shackles. So that any person who has been set free has been done so by this life-giving power of the Spirit. And if that life-giving Spirit is in you and you are free, you are going to begin to see change in your life. Your life will never be the same. Jesus set you free from sin because he wanted more for you. He wanted better for you. He doesn't just want to forgive you. He wants you to walk into the abundant life of joy. He wants you to enjoy the world that he created before the fall, a world perfect and flourishing. He wants you to stop running toward your sin like playing in the mud pies, thinking the mud's great. And he wants to take you to Hawaii to see the clear blue waters of the ocean. But as former slaves, we are some, sometimes we can't help but go back to the mud. As former slaves, uh, we can't help but go back to what the only thing we know brings us pleasure. Remember this in the context of chapter 7 when Paul was talking about how he's always screwing up. He's always doing the wrong thing. It's not that we're now perfect. It's not that now that we always hate our sin. That old man still lives in us, right? That old creation still lives in us. We still love our sin sometimes. But the difference is that now I also hate my sin have a love-hate relationship with it. We, the difference is that now we turn away from it and we want to put it to death and we want to run to Christ. That is the difference the Spirit makes in your life. <clears throat> Do you remember the stories of Jesus' healing? There would be a, a guy paralyzed or blind or have some sort of issue and, and Jesus would come and heal them and he would often say, your sins have been forgiven, now rise and walk. Your sins have been forgiven, now open your eyes and see. That order is really important. Maybe you remember the woman caught in adultery. This woman who in the middle of the night was caught sleeping with another man, and she's drug out into the middle of the city kind of courtyard, surrounded by all these men with rocks in their hands, ready to stone her until she dies because of her sin. And they also want to trap Jesus, so they ask Jesus about it, and he says, yes, she she." she Deserves death, so let's, let's stone her. But you, whoever has no sin, cast the first stone. One by one, they all walk away. And Jesus, the only one who had no sin, who could have rightly thrown the stone, looks at the woman and he says, woman, no one here condemns you, nor do I condemn you. What he says next really, really matters. He doesn't say to the woman, no one condemns you, now make sure you go live a better life. He says, no one here condemns you, nor do I condemn you. Now go sin no more. He, does, he says, no condemnation. Free check. Blank statement. No condemnation. And now let that radically change your life. Go sin no more. And that order is important. The assurance of God's acceptance of us. The assurance that he is going to accept us is what gives us the power to change. The assurance of his acceptance before any of my actions, before I do anything, is what gives me the power to change. You see, the only way we change 
is when we know that if we never change, God will love us anyway. Change and a transformed life comes from receiving unconditional forgiveness. So God's forgiveness, his love, his salvation comes to you with no strings attached. No requirements of payback. But it just so happens that that sort of love always changes us. A transformed life is always followed by a promise of no condemnation. A transformed life is what naturally follows. No condemnation. But I want to get really practical for a minute. Because you, you, you want to know that if that promise of no condemnation belongs to you, you want to know if you're safe and secure in the Father's arms. And, and we said, what we said is that if that is true of you, you'll see the work of the Spirit in your life. But what does that look like? Right, we can talk about what that looks like up here, but what does that look like on a day-to-day level? What does it look like for you to set your mind on things of the Spirit and not things of the flesh? What does it look like the Spirit's at work in you? Because we can have a weird kind of picture of the Spirit, right? Sometimes we can think, you know, we're in worship, we're singing a song, and we get, you know, goosebumps, and we think, oh, man, that's the Spirit. There he is. Or sometimes, guys, you see a cute girl, you're single, and you're like, oh, and then you get like this feeling in your stomach, and you're like, that's God telling me I should ask her on a date. That's the Spirit. Right, we can get confused by what the Spirit is. It's not this force. It's not tingles in your stomach. He's a person. And so when the person of the Spirit is at work in your life, it means that you are setting your mind on Him. It means you're going to be thinking about the things that He thinks about. You're going to be loving the things He loves. You're going to be seeking the things He seeks. Because that is what happens when you are in a relationship with somebody, right? When you have fellowship with somebody, right? You have things in common. And so what are the things that the Spirit loves that we will begin to naturally love and think about too? God's glory, truth, beauty, justice, righteousness, love for his church, love for God's people, the fame of Jesus and the spread of the message of the gospel, other people getting saved. The marks of the Spirit's work in you is things like loving going to church and being around other people and serving God's people. It is a love for others coming to faith, a love for finding God's truth in his word, right? Uh, the Spirit's work in you is, is a love for serving people, a love for beautiful things that remind you of the beauty of God, a love for seeing justice played out in a world where all things are backward and screwed up and wrong. But also, the Spirit who is making you into this image of Jesus. And so when you want to turn back to your sin, when you want to dip your toe back into that old life, what does he do? He convicts you, right? But what is that? That's a church word. What does that mean? He convicts you. It means he's screaming inside of you, stop! Don't do it! Don't listen to its lies. Don't listen to its allure and its promise that it's going to make you satisfied. Don't listen. Run away. And then when you do fall, when you ignore him and you give in and you, and you take the sin, you go back to that old life and, you, and we fall like we all do. The Spirit doesn't make you feel guilty. That's yourself or the evil one. It doesn't heap shame on you. That's yourself. The Spirit points you to the cross. He reminds you that no condemnation is still yours. He lifts your chin. He holds you tight and he says, I've still got you. Keep going. If you sense the Spirit of God doing this sort of work in you, then you can rest assured that that is evidence that God has saved you, 
that he's made you his own, and that he will never leave or forsake you, and that no condemnation is always yours. But if you don't sense those things, if you hate going to church, if you hate serving, if you hate reading your Bible, if you hate praying, if you feel no remorse over your sin, if you feel no voice calling you away from it and no peace because of the cross, then you should check yourself because it does not seem like the Spirit is at work. Maybe he's not at work because he's not in there. See, a life that has been given fully to God is evidenced or proved by the Spirit at work in that person's life. And the Spirit is at work in us because Jesus came not just to forgive us of our sin, but to free us from its slavery, to make us his, to free you from the enemy and to bring you into his home. But in freeing you, in freeing us from slavery, he doesn't want us as half-slaves with one foot in this old world and one foot in his. He wants all of us. C.S. Lewis said it this way. Christ says, give me all of you. I don't want a certain amount of your time, a certain amount of your talents and money, or a certain amount of your work. I want you, all of you. I have not come to torment or frustrate the natural man or woman, but to kill it. No half measure will do. I don't want to only prune a branch here or a branch there. Rather, I want the whole tree out. Hand it over to me, the whole outfit, all of your desires, all of your wants and your wishes and your dreams. Turn them all over to me. Give yourself to me and I will make of you a new self in my image. Give me yourself. In exchange, I will give you myself. My will shall become your will. My heart shall become your heart. As performing and pretending are just gimmicks our sinful heart tries to use to gain God's favor in our own feeble strength. But instead of pretending like everything's okay, instead of performing like we've got it all together, trying to have it all together, there is an easier way. And there's an easier way that the first step is incredibly hard. Something that we can do that will finally set us free from sin slavery and our own man-made slavery. We can surrender. And when you surrender your whole life to God, he will take the whole thing and give it back to you completely restored, healed, and made new. So do you want to be free? Do you want to be free from sin's grasp? Do you want to be free from the self-imposed slavery we put on ourselves of pretending like everything's okay and, and trying to be good enough? But surrender your life to Christ. Maybe for the first time or for, again, every day continue to surrender. Give up and stop fighting. Stop playing games. Give your life to him. And in return, he will set you free. No condemnation. No guilt. No shame. Only new life found in the eternal embrace of a God who loves you so much that he sent his son to die, pay for the price of your sin so that he could have you. As legend goes, Abraham Lincoln bought this slave at the auction. And as they walked away, he took the shackles off and he said, you're free. And she didn't believe him. So she said, oh, am I free to say whatever I want to say? And he said, yeah, you're free. Oh, am I free to do whatever I want to do? Yes, you're free. Oh, am I free to go wherever I want to go? He said, yes, you're free. You can say, you can do, you can go anywhere you want to go. And according to legend, he says, if I can go wherever I want to go, then I think I should like to go with you. Because when Jesus sets you free, 
truly free. There is nowhere we would rather go than with him. Because only with Jesus will you ever be truly free. Free from fear. Fear fear of rejection. Free from the need to pretend or perform. Free from failure. Free from guilt. Free from shame. And free to run into the abundant life he has prepared for you. This morning, may we all run into the arms of Jesus and be free. Pray. Father, this morning, there are really probably two of us in this room. One of us in this room doesn't belong to you. Some of us in this room don't belong to you. Maybe we're religious. Maybe we believe there's a God. But the idea of no condemnation without anything on my part, without having to be good enough or at least pretending to be good enough, seems far-fetched. Father, this morning, would you make it clear to those in this room who who don't belong to you, make it clear that they don't, first of all, Father, and show them that this free gift of no condemnation, this gift of new life can be theirs at the cost of their life. If they come and give all of themselves to you, you give all of yourself to them. So, Father, for those in this room who don't belong to you, would you this morning give them the courage to walk down this aisle as we're going to sing this song to come talk to me and say, Brent, I want to know Jesus. I've been around Jesus for a long time maybe, but, but, I've, but I've never known him. I've never given my life to him, and I want to do that this morning. God, give us the courage to do something like that. And, Father, for the other person in this room who, many of us in this room who, are living under the weight of condemnation, unnecessarily, living under the weight of guilt and shame because we are, we are trying to hold up the facade that everything's okay. We're trying to hold up the facade, the pretense that our life is under control, that we've got everything together, that our kids, we love them, and they're all fine, our job's fine, our marriage's fine, everything's okay. Our porn addiction, we just ignore that. Help us, Father, to come with open hands finally saying, God, I know you see it all and you still love me and I'm fully known and fully loved. Release us from the prisons we make for ourselves of pretense and free us from the prisons we make for ourselves of having to perform and be good enough to hold some standard that if we hold that standard then and only then will you continue to love us. Free us from those things, Father. If that's you this morning and you've been burying that weight, come, let me pray with you. Let me hug your neck and, and let's talk about and pray that God would release you that you can let go of the weight of those things, that your shoulders may finally relax and you can rest easy in the arms of Jesus. There are many of us in this room that struggle with that. God, help us to be honest with ourselves about where we're at. Honest with ourselves and honest with you and help us to respond the way we need to this morning. We can only do that because you paid it all. You didn't pay some of it. You didn't even pay most of it. Paid it all. Every, every little sin, every big sin, every drop. Paid it all. The charges against us have been dropped. So let us sing like people who are free. Let us sing like freed slaves who love freedom and love our rescuer. Make us new. If you're here this morning and you need to pray about any of these things or anything else, I'm going to be up here at the front. You just come while we sing this song. Let me do that. Be some guys on the side that you want to go to them, go to them.
Stand there and sing like a freed man or a woman. Whatever you do, don't do nothing. God, give us the courage. In Christ's name we pray. All those people said.